The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Welcome to our podcast, The Tactical Take, where we discuss our thoughts on the markets, highlighting the opportunities and risks that we see in the current environment, and how we're positioned in the tactical sleeves of the Natixis models to reflect this backdrop. My name is Jack Janisiewicz, Portfolio Manager and Lead Portfolio Strategist with Natixis Investment Manager Solutions, and I lead the Natixis Investment Manager Solutions Investment Committee. There's quite a bit to unpack this month, so let's get right to the macro talk. December was all about central banks. That's it. Sounds pretty simple, but there was a lot going on. So let's start off with the Fed and Chair Jay Powell. And obviously, this is all about inflation. The November consumer price inflation print that dropped in December, to be precise. Both core and headline inflation surprised to the downside. Yes, inflation is still high and more work needs to be done, but we're finally seeing sequential deceleration. And guess what? There's more disinflation in the pipelines yet to manifest. Markets had every reason to be skeptical heading into this print, given that the last time we strung together two consecutive downside surprises for core CPI was summer of 2021. But the November release would not disappoint, and perhaps one of the most impressive dynamics in this print was the downside miss despite a pickup in rent and owner's equivalent rent. Recall that rent and owner's equivalent rent both fall under the header of shelter within the CPI basket, and shelter is the concept that the Bureau of Labor Statistics uses to reflect inflation within the housing market. Why is this such a big deal? Shelter carries a huge weighting within the basket, almost 33%. So when you have 33% of the inflation basket working against you, it's pretty impressive as to how much the rest of the basket has softened in order to offset this line item. In paging through the guts of the inflation report, it was basically good news anywhere you looked. The message was pretty clear. Disinflation breath is widening out. Now, if you recall from Powell's Brookings Institute speech, he laid out very clearly how the Fed's thinking about inflation. Basically, a checklist. That checklist consists of the following. Core goods inflation, shelter inflation, and core services ex-shelter inflation, or what we like to call super core services inflation. These all need to show clear and convincing evidence that inflation is rolling over and heading lower. So let's run through that checklist in context of inflation report one by one. Core goods move further into deflationary territory. We can see things like used car prices, which have now plummeted back to earth. New car prices were essentially flat. Apparel and household furnishing prices rebounded back into positive territory after hitting deflation the previous month. But the more important takeaway here, while we continue to see month-to-month volatility in the numbers, the trend is clearly deflationary for durable goods, and it's being led by the pandemic-related problem children, which are all easing up. Next on the Powell checklist, shelter costs. We've been talking about this for almost two years now, and my head hurts from it. Shelter prices lag current market rents by about 12 months. Everyone knows this, even the Fed. That means that the continued strength in shelter prices in the current inflation prints are a residual of the surge in rents from 2021. Rear view mirror stuff. However, if we swap in market rents, this tells us a very different story. Shelter costs have been declining since June of 2021, and monthly prints are now flipping negative. The weakness in market rents is accelerating at the same time household formation rates are flatlining. And this means that a pipeline of deflation is coming for a line item that carries a 40% weight in core CPI for 2023. Chunky monkey. And this now leaves us with super core services, the third box on Powell's checklist. We've stated for some time now that this is where the rubber meets the road, the big one. 
Service prices are stickier and generally tied to income growth. A hotter labor market with sticky wages likely translates to sticky services inflation. But we're starting to see signs that this may not be the case. Nominal wage growth is decelerating, but as inflation ebbs, real wage growth is actually picking up. Simple math. But at the same time, labor market churn is slowing as quit and higher rates ease. All of this is happening while the unemployment rate remains stable and the economy continues to add over 200,000 jobs per month. Supercore services have seemingly stabilized, but we now need evidence of it rolling over. And this is what the Fed is keenly focused on, and it's beginning to move in the right direction, all without broad pain to the labor market or the economy. Soft landing, anyone? Which now takes us to the December Federal Reserve Open Market Committee meeting. As expected, the Fed announced a 50 basis point hike to its overnight lending rate, marking a downshift from 75 basis points to 50 basis points and pushing the upper bound of the Fed Fund's target rate up to 4.5%. But the real fireworks came with the infamous dots in the remainder of the Summary of Economic Projections, or as we call, SEP. Remember that those dots are Reserve Bank members' forecasts and play a role in helping to set market expectations, a form of forward guidance. We'll come back to this in a second because it's important. But the key takeaway, the market's reaction function to the Fed has changed. In plain English, the Fed can jawbone all it wants, but the data is now in control. For the first time in a long time, there was no need to unpack every little word out of Powell's mouth as we attempted to read the tea leaves. While we did get an acknowledgement that recent inflation data has been encouraging, the Fed is by no means anywhere close to declaring victory. They will require substantially more evidence to be confident that inflation is on the sustained path downward. This is a Phillips curve Fed. And a quick Econ 101 reminder, the Phillips curve is an economic theory that links inflation and the unemployment rate together in an inverse relationship. So this Fed is a Phillips curve Fed, and their expectations of a stubbornly tight labor market translates to stubbornly persistent supercore services inflation that will take time to come down, and hence the higher for longer mentality with rates. Now, what about those dots? I promised you we'd come back to them. All eyes are on the 2023 dot for a read on the terminal rate, which rose from 4.625% to 5 and an eighth. 100 basis points of cuts is forecasted to arrive in 2024, but there was considerable dispersion around this median dot. Not really a consensus on how much to cut, but certainly a consensus on the need for some cuts eventually. The rest of the SCP was predictably hawkish. Aside from a modest upgrade to 2022 growth, across the board future growth was revised lower while inflation and unemployment were revised higher. But we should stress that these are all projections, and more specifically, projections under their individual assumptions of projected appropriate monetary policy. In an environment where the Fed and the markets have equally poor forecasting accuracy, we need to take these with a huge grain of salt. More importantly, the SEP is simply a tool to push their hawkish tone, read jawboning. And these projections are very much subject to change. Just go back and take a look at the December 2021 SEP. And one more thing to note, no less than 10 times did Powell state that these were their best estimates as of today. In other words, these forecasts can change and change significantly. While this SEP ignores the encouraging improvements in the data, that doesn't mean that the next one won't. It's all about data dependence and flexibility. It always has been. 
The SEP is all about messaging, and it now looks increasingly divorced from the evolving data. Powell has every incentive to remain hawkish to the last second. There's much more danger in sounding too dovish versus too hawkish right now. The Fed will continue to jawbone to achieve its goals, but the data is all that matters, and markets are beginning to look through that charade as the data continues to move in the right direction. The key to remember, the data is more important than the dots right now. Okay, let's shift gears and talk about the Bank of Japan, or the BOJ. They've been intervening in the local government bond market, JGBs, buying and selling bonds in order to keep yields pinned at a targeted level of 0%. But the BOJ has been allowing the benchmark yield to fluctuate plus or minus 25 basis points in either direction around the targeted 0% yield. Any move outside of those levels in the BOJ would intervene, buying and selling bonds to force the yield back within the bands. Recently, the BOJ announced a widening of those bands to plus or minus 50 basis points, effectively allowing the benchmark 10-year JGB yield to gravitate higher towards the upper level of the band at 50 basis points. The move reverberated through global bond markets as term premium moved higher in sympathy with JGBs. Many have interpreted this shift from the BOJ as a precursor to a broader fundamental policy shift, with the bank moving towards a tightening in advance of Governor Kuroda's retirement in April. However, we're not so sure that's the right takeaway and instead think investors should take the BOJ's explanation at face value. In the BOJ's rationale for this tweak, the JGB market has effectively dried up and is no longer functioning properly. And should this backdrop persist, financial conditions could be adversely impacted as a poorly functioning bond market could easily hinder corporate issuance in the future. Taking the BOJ explanation at face value, there are a few things to think about here. First, a kink had developed in the local JGB curve where the benchmark 10-year bond was trading at a slightly lower yield than where the 8- and 9-year JGBs were trading, a central bank-driven outlier. With the move to expand the trading bands around the 10-year bond, this kink disappeared with the curve assuming a more normal shape. So did the BOJ actually tighten monetary policy in addressing this anomaly? Well, yes and no. Yes, because any increase in interest rates is an implied tightening in financial conditions. No, because JGB bond buying has increased at the same time, effectively upping the ante on quantitative easing. Remember, Japan's issue is with deflation, not inflation. They're fighting somewhat of a different battle here, and in order to tame the specter of deflation, nominal incomes and nominal growth need to rise, and this was all attempting to happen in tandem with fiscal spending, double-barrel action. And with the BOJ purchasing bonds, it owns nearly half of the JGB market currently. This has certainly helped the government finance the fiscal deficit, which is used to pay for the government spending. But by dominating the local market, liquidity has all but vanished. And this has created all sorts of risks and distortions in the bond market, with the aforementioned kink in the curve being one of them. The risk of these kinds of distortions, it hampers the ability of corporates to tap the bond market and raise financing. Japanese companies are notorious for hoarding cash. No need to give them an incremental incentive to hoard even more by making it difficult to obtain financing. Rather, they need incentives to invest and spend. So is inflation back in Japan and deflation worries can be put to rest? Looking at the current contributions to inflation, most of the pass-through is effectively being imported. To claim victory over deflation, you would prefer to see organically driven price increases, wage growth, not imported inflation. Much of the recent inflation can be attributed to increases in energy and food costs, which are being reflected in imported good prices. 
While we have seen a marginal broadening out in the wider range of these items, the sustainability of the increases remains suspect. Announcing a shift to a tightening bias against this backdrop certainly would appear premature and could potentially lead to a short-circuiting of the nascent increases we expect to see in prices and wages in the coming months. Without rising wages, it's hard to see Japanese corporates wanting to push through price increases and assume any sort of pricing power. The idea is to change that mentality. Inflation is here to stay and companies have pricing power to push through higher costs as consumers can absorb them with higher wages. One other point worth highlighting, much has been made over the potential for Japanese investors to begin repatriating overseas investments back home to take advantage of higher rates, putting upward pressure on the U.S. Treasury yields and corporates. Yes, hedging costs have certainly made Japanese investments in U.S. dollar-denominated assets less attractive, but this analysis ignores the depth and liquidity offered by U.S. markets. Japanese life insurance companies, with assets somewhere north of $3 trillion in size, need to find a home somewhere. And with the BOJ owning nearly 50% of outstanding JGBs, that leaves only about $4.6 trillion in free float alongside a minuscule domestic corporate bond market. It's tough to repatriate investments back home when, quite simply, there's nothing else to buy. And remember, U.S. Treasury yields haven't seen those levels since 2007-2008. Liquidating positions at current levels could lead to mark-to-market losses, something insurance companies are loath to do. A buyer strike for overseas assets? Possibly. Repatriation? Unlikely. In the end, we'll take the BOJ at its word. This was a technical tweak helping to improve the functionality of the local bond market, not a preemptive strike in pivoting towards tighter monetary policy. And don't worry there, European Central Bank. We've got some comments to address your latest moves as well. Cue up the ECB, who announced an as-expected 50 basis point hike in their deposit rate. But the accompanying press conference is what caught us by surprise. ECB President Lagarde quipped that she expected to raise rates further based on the substantial upward revisions to the inflation outlook. She went on to say that, quote, inflation remains far too high and is projected to stay above the target for too long. In particular, the governing council judges that interest rates will still have to rise significantly at a steady pace, end quote. Wow. That one blindsided us as well as the market. The rate hike and size were expected, but the accompanying hawkish language was most definitely not. And there you have it, a major global central bank upping the ante on rate hikes at a time when the market was starting to price in peak in rates. The risk with the ECB lies in the inflation composition. Unlike here in the U.S., where a large portion of inflation comes from excessive demand, Europe's inflation problems persist from the elevated food and energy prices. Forcing rates higher to crimp demand is taking a heavy-handed approach to taming inflation. The solution would be easy if the ECB could print more oil on natural gas, but unfortunately that's not how it works. So while the market continues to talk recession for 2023, the odds of one for Europe certainly seem to go higher with a much more hawkish bias emanating from the ECB. As for any portfolio changes this month, none to report. So instead, I wanted to touch on a key theme that we will be leveraging during 2023. And this is our view surrounding the desynchronization of global monetary policy. Central banks certainly took monetary policy to a new level in the fight against the recessionary side effects resulting from COVID policies employed to slow a global pandemic. Now those measures are unwinding. Divergences in the monetary policy backdrop will certainly lead to differentiated growth outcomes for the various regions around the world. And these central bank policies could very well be a key differentiator in asset class returns in 2023. 
Looking across the globe, we see two significant central banks at various stages in their hiking cycles. The Fed is certainly much farther along their tightening cycle, with the end probably in sight. The ECB looks to have turned decisively more hawkish following the comments from their last meeting. ECB President Lagarde's tightening cycle appears to be accelerating following in the footsteps of the Fed's playbook, but they're several quarters behind and need to play catch-up. And in Asia, the Bank of Japan continues to remain easy, with any significant change towards a tighter policy backdrop still some ways away. And lastly, China's People's Bank of China is running counter-cyclical to everyone, already in an easing mode with more to come. These differentiated central bank policies will likely see very different growth results in the coming year, which will likely differentiate asset returns as well. Expect to see these themes reflected in the portfolios as we turn the page and reload for another year. To wrap up our podcast, The Tactical Take, this is Jack Chanasiewicz. Hope you enjoyed the commentary, and thanks for listening. Important information. For listeners outside the United States, Natixis Investment Managers Distribution and Service Groups include Natixis Investment Managers SA, Luxembourg, Natixis Investment Managers International, France, and their affiliated distribution and service entities. These entities conduct any regulated activities only in and from the jurisdictions in which they are licensed or authorized. Their services and the products they manage are not available to all investors in all jurisdictions. For additional information and important podcasts disclosures for listeners outside the U.S., please consult imnatixis.com slash intl slash podcasts and other media. Further, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and not necessarily those of Natixis Investment Managers. These views were provided as of the date of recording and will not be revised. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute investment advice or an offer to buy or sell a financial product from any Natixis Investment Managers entity. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Investment risk exists with equity, fixed income, and alternative investments. There is no assurance that any investment will meet its performance objectives or that losses will be avoided. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. Performance data discussed represents past performance and is no guarantee of, and not necessarily indicative of, future results. Indexes are not investments, do not incur fees and expenses and are not professionally managed. It is not possible to invest directly in an index. This document may contain references to copyrights, indexes and trademarks that may not be registered in all jurisdictions. Third-party registrations are the property of their respective owners and are not affiliated with Natixis Investment Managers or any of its related or affiliated companies. Collectively Natixis, such third-party owners do not sponsor, endorse or participate in the provision of any Natixis services, funds or other financial products, provided by Natixis Distribution, LLC, 888 Boylston Street, Boston, MA02199. Natixis Investment Managers includes all of the investment management and distribution entities affiliated with Natixis Distribution, LLC and Natixis Investment Managers SA Natixis Distribution, LLC is a limited purpose broker, dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Natixis Advisors, LLC provides advisory services through its division Natixis Investment Manager Solutions. Advisory services are generally provided with the assistance of model portfolio providers, some of which are affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. LLC Natixis Advisors, LLC does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax or legal professional prior to making any investment decision. Member SIPC Attracts. 5395270 1 1 expiration date August 31st 2023 POD 37 January 2023